This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Let's pray. Open thou our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. We're in the end of Daniel chapter 6. We said that Daniel 6 dealt with Daniel's divine deliverance from the lion's den. At the end of last week's class, we pointed out that the reason that Daniel wasn't scared in the lion's den is because the lion of the tribe of Judah was with him. And we also pointed out that the reason that the lions didn't eat Daniel is because they could find nothing but backbone. <laughs> we want to come to verses 23 and 24 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, 23 and 24. Then was the king exceeding glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the lion's den, them and their children and their wives, and the lions had mastery of them, and break all their bones in pieces, or ever they came at the bottom of the den. The king... Darius, the Mede, had a twofold reaction. He was glad and mad. He was glad that Daniel was safe. But he was mad when he realized what Daniel's enemies did to accuse him and uh, to try to make a fool out of him and tricking him into putting Daniel in the lion's den. And so he had them all executed. They ended up being devoured by the very lions that they wanted to have Daniel devoured by. It makes me think of the book of Esther, how Haman was hung on his own gallows. There are verses in Psalms about the boomerang effect of how a holy God gives people who attack God's people poetic justice as one line of poetry answers to its fellow. So God will often make the punishment answer to the crime. And the Bible says that what you intended to do wrongly to that person, God can make come back on you. It's kind of like a boomerang effect. You throw the boomerang and it comes back. The registrar of Piedmont Bible College, my good friend, Terry Martin, now with the Lord, told me that he was at Heather Hills Golf Course in Winston-Salem, and uh, he said he hit this ball, and it was a hard grounder, and it hit some kind of a pipe above the ground and came right back at him, pretty fast and hard. Well, the Bible says that God can work it out that if you intend to do evil to somebody, if you're not careful, it can come right back at you. There's some verses about that, like, for example, Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16. Psalm 7. Verses 15 and 16. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. 
His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own pate, or the crown of his head. In 916 of Psalms we read, The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Or over in Psalm 10 verse 2, The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. Or if we go over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 27, we read something similar. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein, and he that rolleth a stone, it will roll upon him. Proverbs 26, 27. Sometimes people say it like this today. What goes around comes around. The Bible speaks about this in terms of the law of sowing and reaping. As we read in Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And as Hosea says, you sow the wind, God can work it out so you will reap the whirlwind. Now they were dead before they got all the way down to the ground. You see, the lions didn't have anything to eat the night before. Darius is impressed at how Daniel's God could deliver him and makes a decree that all people should honor Daniel's God and speak nothing against him. And so we close the chapter with verses 25 through 28. Daniel 6, 25 through 28. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. What was true of Daniel is true of thee, as we read at the end of Psalm 91, because he hath set his love upon thee, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, as we said in our introduction in our first class, the book of Daniel is unique in that it's the only book in the Bible where half of it is written in Hebrew and half of it is written in Aramaic, which is a language like Hebrew. And we said that all the way from 2.4b through 7.28, Daniel's not written in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Aramaic is close to Hebrew, sort of like Portuguese would be the Spanish, but it is a different language. And the section that's written in Aramaic, which was the commercial language of the Middle East in Daniel's day, or the Near East in Daniel's day, uh, that's the language that Gentiles would know much better than they knew Hebrew. And since that section deals a lot more with Gentile history and Gentile prophecy, God saw fit to put that section of the book in Aramaic, partly so that the Gentiles could get a clear message about 
what God was saying about them. And it's interesting that in this Aramaic section, it both begins and ends with a prophecy of the four great Gentile empires that will dominate world history. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. They're presented as metals in chapter two. They're presented at the end of the section as wild beasts in chapter seven. But both, but both the Aramaic section both begins and ends with a description of these four Gentile world empires that will dominate history in a period Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles, from the beginning of the Babylonian captivity in 605 BC, all the way through the end of the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon, into which Christ comes with heaven's armies and in the wonderful words of John Phillips, brings the times of the Gentiles to a screeching halt <laughs> and then sets up his kingdom. But it seems like that section of Daniel was written in Aramaic to help get the message out to the Gentile world. This is what God says about you. And this is what you need to do if you want to get things right. And there are only four Aramaic portions in the Old Testament. Daniel 2.4b through 7.28 is the longest, but there's one verse in Jeremiah that's in Aramaic, and it's a very interesting verse, and it reminds me of the Aramaic of Daniel. In Jeremiah 10, 1 through 10, Jeremiah is describing how God is the true God and the living God, and these idols make no sense. But he looks forward to the time when Israel will be living in Babylonian captivity, in the midst of heathendom, and their faith will be greatly challenged. And they also need to have a telling witness. And very interestingly, when you come to Jeremiah 10, 11, he switches from Hebrew to Aramaic as if he wants to say, in their own Aramaic language, this is what you tell them when you're living among them in captivity. Thus shall ye say unto them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. And that's an Aramaic to help get that message across as the Jews enter into captivity and uh, into heathendom. Interesting. Well, Daniel 1 through 6 is mainly historical, historical narrative. Has some prophecy, like Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the mighty metallic image, his dream of the towering tree that was felled, but most of it is historical narrative, and it's written in the third person. But Daniel 7 through 12 is almost entirely prophetical, almost all future prophecy. Now, the prophecy in Daniel 1 through 6 was largely the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 2 and 4 with Daniel interpreting their meaning. But almost all of chapters 7 through 12 is prophetical. And this time, Daniel receives the visions. And he seeks help from God as to how to interpret them. And there are four visions in chapters 7 through 12, all given to Daniel. There's a vision in chapter 1 about the four wild beasts that come out of the stormy sea. 
And then the second vision is that of the ram and he goat in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, you have the third vision, which is the famous 70 weeks prophecy that points to the time Messiah will come. And then in chapters 10 through 12, you have the fourth vision that tends to say a lot about what we call a future period called the tribulation. So chapters one, and by the way, that's written in the first person. And so chapters one through six is largely historical. Chapters seven through 12, almost entirely prophetical. And it consists of four prophetic visions, each one given to Daniel. Just as a quick summary. In chapter seven, we have Daniel's first vision, four great beasts rising out of the tumultuous sea, which happens to be the Mediterranean Sea. Daniel's first vision, four great beasts rising out of the tumultuous sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. Only the Son of Man, whose kingdom will be introduced in the middle of the chapter. Only the Son of Man, whose kingdom is truly humane and not beastly. A kingdom that's in favor both of God and man. Only the Son of Man can walk upon these wild waves of the sea, picturing the nations in turmoil, and speak, peace be still. And of his kingdom, the psalmist would say, in his days shall the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. Now, Daniel is given a vision in the night in the first year of King Belshazzar, around 553 BC. He sees the winds striving upon the Mediterranean Sea, and out of it come four wild beasts. The first beast is a lion with wings, two wings as an eagle. That represents Babylon. The second beast is a bear, which is higher on one side than the other and has three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. That's Medo-Persia. The third kingdom is a leopard with four wings and four heads. That's Greece. And then there's a nondescript metallic monster, vicious, unlike any animal in the animal kingdom, with iron teeth. And we later read brass claws. And this represents Rome. But 10 horns come up on the head of this fourth beast and they represent Rome in a future day under Antichrist. And uh, a little horn comes up after the 10 horns are in place and rises to power quickly and takes over. That's the Antichrist who comes out of nowhere and takes over the revived Roman Empire in the West and uh, speaks great swelling words against God and attacks his people, we will find out. He's called in 1 John the Antichrist. And then he sees a fifth kingdom of the Son of Man, and God gives to him all the nations of the earth to rule, and his kingdom will never be destroyed after the four worldly kingdoms 
are totally vanquished. And then in the second half of the chapter, the angel Gabriel interprets to Daniel the meaning of these five kingdoms, the four beastly kingdoms and the kingdom of the Son of Man, and talks more about the Antichrist activities and how he'll wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And, uh, but the kingdom will eventually, at the second coming of Christ, and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be given to the people, the saints of the Most High God, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the chapter ends on a very positive note and reminds us of when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. <laughs> so that's kind of a quick summary of the chapter. I have some discussion questions I'd like to interact with you on. Question number one. Contrast Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the times of the Gentiles in chapter two and Daniel's vision of the times of the Gentiles in chapter seven. You see some interesting contrasts? They both talk about four great Gentile world empires that will dominate history and by and large oppress the Jewish people from 605 BC till Armageddon. But there are some interesting differences. Do you see the contrast between the way Nebuchadnezzar saw those empires and how Daniel saw them? Yeah, feel free to interact. Chapter 7 does go into more detail, especially about uh, the Antichrist. In chapter 2, you basically know of a revived Roman Empire that's made up of 10 Western nations, but he goes into more detail, especially about the Antichrist in chapter 7, as the little horn. Yes, sir. Is it Dave? Yes, yes Dave. That's interesting, uh, Dave. I've never, I've never seen that before. Um, yeah, but Nebuchadnezzar sees them as one whole image. They're all, they're, they're separate, but they're all more connected. They're more separate in chapter seven. That's a good point. I had not thought of that. I'm not sure why, but now you're giving me something to think about. I hadn't seen that before. Anyone else? Do you remember when? our Lord Jesus was taken up into an exceeding high mountain and shown all the kingdoms of the earth and the glory of them in a moment of time in his third temptation in the wilderness. And Satan said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me, all shall be thine. Do you remember that? Notice that when Satan presented the kingdoms of this world to Christ, he emphasized their outward glory their pomp and circumstance. 
thinking he had sweeped Christ off of his feet with all of that splendor and prestige. But I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, with penetrating vision, looked beneath all of that glitter and tinsel to the inward rot and saw that if sin remains at the heart of world nations, nobody can do anything with them and they wouldn't be worth for him to come back and rule. And he wanted to redeem them more than ever at his first coming. So to be something worth ruling at his second coming. Before the government of the world was put on his shoulders, Isaiah 9, 6. The iniquities of us all had to be put on his shoulders, Isaiah 53, 6. In other words, he saw through all of that pomp and circumstance and uh, glitter to the real need and heart and rot. And he wanted to redeem mankind more than ever. So when he came back, there would be a world that he could do something with and would be worth ruling. And so he gloriously, virtuously resisted that temptation. In other words, our Lord Jesus had Daniel's perspective. Daniel, the man of God, the beloved prophet, he saw these four empires that Nebuchadnezzar saw so glorious as part of this brilliant, magnificent image. He saw them as wild, bloodthirsty beasts uh, who were against anything that would build up humanity. And very appropriately, the fifth kingdom that would displace them all is the kingdom of one like unto the Son of Man. A kingdom that would truly be in favor with God and man and represent the best interest of humanity. There may be coming a time, I think it's already upon us, where people will think of Christians as right-wing extremists who are standing in the way of progressive humanistic globalization. And they could well paint them as the enemy that we're better off without. Because they're an enemy to humanism. But all along, the church is the greatest friend of humanity. When Jesus comes into a family, he could do a whole lot more for it than this wicked world ever can. But your perspective is very important. Do you see the world as something glorious like Nebuchadnezzar saw? or something that's vicious and we need to be saved from, as Daniel saw, and as Jesus saw through Satan's temptation. So we must, like our Lord, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's another question. What is depicted by the three ribs between the bear's teeth? Medo-Persia is presented as a bear that has three meaty ribs clenched between its teeth. What do those three ribs represent? Yes, Brother Mike. Um, I think Babylon's involved, Mike. I think it's broader than that, but I think that's involved. 
In fact, I was just reading Warren Wearsby's commentary in the last day, and he says, you know, good men will have different views, but he said the view I hold, and I would agree with Dr. Wearsby, is, and I think Dr. Coles holds this view too in his uh, prophetic notes, if I remember correctly, in its great rise to power, the Medo-Persian Empire defeated three great powers, and it helped to establish it as a new empire. It defeated uh, Croesus, the king of Lydia, that was in 546 BC, I believe. Defeated Babylon in 539 BC, and then defeated Egypt in, I think it was 525 BC, if I remember correctly. These were three great uh, conquests that helped become part of the composite of the growing Medo-Persian Empire. And so many people think those three ribs represent those three major conquests at the uh, outset and onset of this new empire that would replace Babylon. Uh, but Babylon, I think, certainly would be involved in that composite. Another question, what was Jesus' favorite title for himself in the four Gospels? What was Jesus' favorite title for himself in the four Gospels? Yes, ma'am. Yes, the Son of Man. Now, he's called Jesus, oh, I might be off on the figure. I was thinking somewhere around 542 times. He's called Jesus more times than any other name in the narrative. But when Jesus is speaking of himself, his favorite way of referring to himself is the Son of Man. You have some 82 references to that in the four Gospels. And one of the very interesting things, and this would be an interesting discussion question sometime, in every instance, Jesus uses the title of himself. Nobody else uses it of him. That's interesting. And he can use the title as another way of just saying, me. Matthew 16, 13, whom the men say that I, the Son of Man, am. And there is one exception in John 12 where somebody else uses it of Jesus and he doesn't use it himself, but it's what we call the exception that proves the rule. They say, who is the Son of Man you're talking about? So they only bring up the term to say, what do you mean by that? We don't know. <laughs> so basically, this is a term that Jesus uses for himself and um, nobody else uses it of him in the, in the four Gospels. And I think there's some interesting reasons for that, but I don't want to get too far afield. Another question. From which Old Testament text did Jesus derive this, his favorite self-title? From what text in the Old Testament did Jesus get this title from? Yes, Cassandra. Um, there are references to the Son of Man in the Psalms, like, what is man that thou art mindful of him? and the Son of Man that thou visitest him in Psalm 8.3. But there, it's more of a Hebraic expression. One who's the son of a mere man. One who's weak and humble and needs God um, and is little. Uh, so we find Son of Man in the Psalms, but I don't think that's the place where Jesus gets it. And if I remember correctly, in the Greek, there are two definite articles. The Son of the Man indicating he's the great representative of humanity. 
He's that seed of the woman who will represent humanity in the great strife of the ages and bruise the serpent's head. And in him, we're victorious. It's the title of him as the great representative man, the second Adam. The one who begins a new race of grace so that even though in Adam all die, in Christ shall be all be made alive. It's the one that Charles Wesley has us sing about at Christmas. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise, thou woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now we face. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. It's actually taken from this chapter, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and is given the world to rule all kingdoms in the millennium and in the eternal era after the four beastly kingdoms are vanquished. Another question. Is the revived Roman Empire in process of formation? I was talking to a dear saint on the way into the service today, and she was commenting that we believe we're seeing the signs of the times building up, leading into the tribulation, even before the rapture of the church has taken place. There's going to be a revived Roman Empire made up of 10 nation states, and these are represented by the 10 horns on the fourth beast, the 10 toes in Nebuchadnezzar's image. We know that all this could come about after the rapture of the church. But is it possible that we're already seeing these things forming now, leading up to that time, before the rapture of the church? Is the revived Roman Empire in process of formation right now? Are we seeing a coming together of the West? of Europe? I think we are. I'd like to talk more about that next week, but I'd like you to think about that. I think I will skip chapter six, in the, question six, in the interest of time, and uh, not to get too technical at this point. If you know what we mean by the premillennial position, Daniel 7 strongly supports it. Our amillennial and our postmillennial friends will basically in some way say the church helps to get the world ready for Christ's second coming and helps to bring in his kingdom. So it's almost kind of like waiting for him when he gets here. But you study Daniel and uh, there's no millennial kingdom in place when Christ comes. He's got to smash the wicked world powers and then set it up. It's catastrophic and dramatic, and um, that represents the premillennial position, that Christ comes back in power and great glory, destroys Israel's enemies, and then sets up his kingdom on the earth and rules from the throne of David. Uh, you say, Brother Yoho, uh, how strongly do you feel about premillennialism? Well, I believe that the body of Christ is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So I want to appreciate all Christians even if they have some strong different views on Bible prophecy than I do. But I do feel strongly about it. 
In fact, I feel so strongly about it that when I go to the food store and I uh, look for cereal, I do not uh, buy post-toasties because I don't want to be thinking about post-millennials. <laughs> and when I go to the doctor and he says, stick out your tongue and say, ah, oh, I refuse because I don't want people to associate me with our millennialism. So I feel pretty strong about the pre-millennial position. I also believe that Jesus Christ could come back for his church very soon. As Dr. John Walbert put it, he says, I believe Christ coming for his church is so soon that I eat my dessert first. <laughs> and I never buy green bananas. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, yes, that's a good book. Yes. Yes. Um, I have great respect for Dr. Showers. Uh, my wife studied under him at Philadelphia College of the Bible, and uh, he was uh, her pastor at the, the Grace Bible Church of Greater Northeast Philadelphia, and um, he was a great encouragement to me at a very tender time in my life when I left the United Methodist Church Ministry and the United Methodist Church, though I'm so grateful for God using my local church and how he saved me there and called me to the ministry. But for separation reasons, I left the United Methodist Ministry as a young man and the United Methodist denomination. And Dr. Showers, among others, was a great encouragement to me uh, in uh, helping me in that transition to more Bible-believing uh, and eventually independent Baptist circles. So I have a great respect for him, and Joyce does too, and he's a great writer. He has a wonderful ability of taking great prophetic truth and making it clear and simple, and uh, it's well worth reading. Thank you. What does Daniel 7.25 mean when it affirms that the Antichrist will think to change times and seasons. What's that talking about? The Antichrist, when he's in power, will try to change times and laws. What kind of laws do you think he'll try to change? I like the idea of dividing all of history into B.C. and A.D., because it shows how central Christ's coming is in the fullness of time when the Word was made flesh. The years B.C. are before his birth, the years A.D. are after his birth. And it divides all history around Christ. Do you think when the Antichrist is in control, he's going to allow B.C. and A.D. to stand? Or do you think he's going to come up with another dating system altogether? We'll talk more about this, Lord willing, next week. But uh, during the French Revolution, in the 1790s in France. They tried to erase all remembrance of the church. They had a, a prostitute enthroned on the altar of the Church of Notre Dame. They um, greatly respected Madame Guillotine. And they tried to go to a 10-day week. They had to eventually, the Napoleon revert back, it didn't work. 
they tried to go to a 10-day week so they would get away from the idea of God creating the world and resting on the seventh day. This might give us some idea of how they're going to try to change laws. And I'm sure she's a very, very accomplished lady. But do you remember uh, the most recent nominee for the Supreme Court was asked by the Senate, can you define a woman? And she wasn't really able to come up with an answer. Um, what's involved in changing times and laws, trying to get people to look at things differently than the way we always looked at them? <laughs> Here's another question. The Bible says that the Antichrist will wear out the saints of the Most High, greatly blaspheme against God, think to change times and laws, and this will occur for a time and times and the dividing of time, verse 27. How long is a time, times, and a dividing of time? How long is that? Okay, three and a half years. I, I think that's uh, correct. We know that the tribulations divided into two halves. The Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel in Daniel 9:27 in the midst of the seven-year week. And you divide that seven years into two equal halves of three and a half years each. And talking about the Antichrist's great persecution of God's people. It says that he will persecute them for a time and times and half a time. And so we would take that as a one-year unit, two years and a half a year, or three and a half years. The Bible speaks about that same period of time as 42 months and as 1260 days, and, uh, or half of Daniel's 70th week of three and a half years. So I think that this is a very accurate answer. Well, do you have any questions or comments about what we tried to cover tonight? We'll actually go through chapter 7, Lord willing, next week and see some very interesting things. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's quite a reference. So that means it wouldn't be, you know, ushering in the king like the homiletics. Uh, I think that would go along with that. Uh, Jesus gives that verse in Luke 18, I think it's verse 8, uh, as he's commenting on the parable of the unjust judge, a little earlier in the chapter. And uh, in the Greek language, it's very interesting. But when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith upon the earth? But in the Greek language, it's structured in such a way in the Greek grammar that grammatically, a negative answer is expected. He will not find faith on the earth, will he? And then, another interesting thing about the Greek is he uses the definite article before faith. He will not find the faith upon the earth, will he? Now, when he says the faith, is he using that like it's sometimes used in Paul's writings 
of the body of Christian truth, those things we place our faith in, the true doctrines of the Bible, that liberals and others will go away from that and won't believe like they used to, and so you won't find the true faith nearly like you used to. Is that what he's saying? Or is it possible that the is what the Greek scholars call the article of previous reference? And he's referring back to the kind of faith he's just described. That widow woman who came before the unjust judge and constantly pleaded her case, and he didn't care for God or man, and he just wanted to be rid of her, and she bothered him so much, he just went ahead and gave her justice. And Jesus says, hear what the unjust judge says, and shall not God avenge his elect to cry unto them day and night, though he bear long with them? If an unjust judge, because he's pestered to death, finally gives in, though he has no principles, and gives the woman the justice she demands, how much more will God, when his elect cry to him day and night, come through for them? If they'll only persevere, and in the words of Hebrews, through faith and patience inherit the promises. But when the Son of Man cometh, will he find that persevering, I believe God no matter what faith upon the earth, or will a lot of people be caving in? It's an interesting reference and um, worth meditating on. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 488 3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.